Welcome to the Global Research News Hour in the summer. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration paid for by the Center for Research on Globalization and aided by campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji Cree, Diné, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. I'm your host, Michael Welch. Today's episode is a recording of a conversation exploring the role of the Canadian mining companies and their heavy investment in mineral extraction from the continent of Africa. The role of these companies and of the Canadian government is quite abysmal in terms of their abuse of human rights and the ecological damage done to the environment. We will host conversations about the operations at hand. Speakers in this episode include James Neen of Mining Watch Canada, Philia Nwoche of Mining Affected Communities United in Action, and Eve Engler, a researcher and author. The talk was moderated by Mianka Mujini, who is also director of the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute, which together with Mining Watch Canada sponsored this event. The Canadian Foreign Policy Institute seeks to bring more transparency. It counters the perception of many Canadians that its foreign policy is benevolent. This discussion took place in June of this year. Jamie Neen leads Mining Watch Strategic Research and Communications, Mining Watch Mining Policy Development, and Individual Mining Project in Western and Northern Canada. He also leads the organization's advocacy in Africa, as well as on mine waste management, mining and indigenous rights, uranium mining, and environmental assessment policy and practice in Canada. Here he is now leading the discussion on Canadian mining in Africa, looting a continent, here on the Global Research News Hour. Both the mining corporations and the governments that support it present mining as a driver of development and now increasingly as a savior in the climate crisis. So supplying massive amounts of materials for the um, renewable energy transition and allowing economic growth and corporate profiteering to continue unhindered as if we were not in the midst of multiple crises of biodiversity, of pollution, of inequality, and as if increased extraction will not itself also exacerbate the climate catastrophe. But just like many Canadians, African leaders at all levels have bought into this pernicious myth-making, sometimes willingly as partners in corporate corruption or as supporters of colonial structures, sometimes under immense pressure from international financial institutions and the ironically misnamed donor governments. But while large-scale mining can indeed generate exports and foreign exchange earnings and provide employment, albeit at decreasing levels, and not to mention dangerous and underpaid, it also creates massive and often permanent social and environmental disruption and damage. And thanks to international investment and taxation agreements and the use of tax havens and secrecy jurisdictions, even government revenue from mining often fails to meet expectations. Because it represents a loss of irreplaceable, non-renewable mineral resources, Mining, therefore, represents a drain of wealth from the African continent, part of an overall transfer of wealth to international investors and former colonial masters that far outstrips the aid and investment provided by wealthy countries. And 
in terms of Canadian investment, one fifth of Canadian mining investment outside the country is in Africa. It is not evenly distributed, although there is uh, some investment in, in most countries of the continent, but just as mineral wealth and mining activity is not evenly distributed. Canadian companies extract mostly gold across West and East Africa, copper in Zambia, copper and gold in the Democratic Republic of Congo, and platinum group metals in South Africa. Oh, and coal. And, you know, the mining industry is highly concentrated and capital intensive. So while there are hundreds of small junior mining companies leasing mining concessions and drilling for minerals, Barely a handful of big operations account for a large part of the total investment. There are hundreds of small junior mining companies leasing mining concessions and drilling for minerals. There are barely a handful of big operations that account for a large part of the total investment. So Ivanhoe has big investments in the DRC in South Africa. First Quantum Minerals is a huge player in Zambia. Barrick Gold operates in Tanzania and the DRC. And a number of other somewhat smaller companies mine mostly gold across West and Central Africa. Canadian companies, as I said, are present in most countries of the continent. But the explosion of Canadian mining interests in the African continent is relatively recent. Since about the mid-1990s, Canada has worked with the World Bank and the IMF to restructure the mining industry in countries around the world to favor foreign and specifically Canadian investment. Mining codes and relevant laws have been rewritten as part of IMF structural adjustment programs or as World Bank loan conditions to reduce taxation and environmental and labor protections, facilitate the repatriation of profits, etc. And at the same time, Canada has enthusiastically negotiated multilateral and bilateral investment treaties or free trade agreements that contain investment provisions. All of these measures directly or indirectly, restrict government's ability to act to protect their own people, their own economies, and their own lands and waters. Using investor state arbitration, companies can and do actually sue governments for millions and sometimes billions of dollars if they are not allowed to proceed as they wish. Now, mining companies are hardly, share, hardly shy in building relationships and lobbying foreign governments, but the Canadian government also directly supports Canadian mining companies in everything from basic permitting processes to negotiating taxation and lease agreements, often intervening at the highest political levels and regardless of how Canadian the company really is. Interestingly, as soon as allegations of human rights or environmental abuse surface, government officials are quick to point out if the company is headquartered elsewhere and maybe not really Canadian. And Canada even has a state corporation, Export Development Canada or EDC, that provides billions of dollars in loans, loan guarantees, and political risk insurance to companies without any meaningful public accountability. So when we look at the mining sector globally, we see an industry that extracts mineral wealth for the benefit of investors, producing commodities to supply wealthy consumers and militaries. In keeping with the power concentrated in governments and increasingly in the financial sector, Mining companies enjoy active government support to establish and expand their operations and create impunity for their abuses of human rights and the environment. And the Canadian mining industry, meaning both Canadian corporations and the Canadian government, plays a much larger part than Canada's modest population and economic clout would suggest. The figures vary from year to year, but 
Something like 75% of the world's several thousand mining companies are Canadian, about 60% trade on the Toronto Stock Exchange, and at least a third of global mining finance is done in Toronto. Now, I alluded earlier to the economic, social, and environmental disruption that large-scale mining causes, and I think it's worth noting that these impacts are often more severe in many African cases than in other parts of the world. And this is partly due to weak democratic governance in the post-colonial period, exacerbated by structural adjustment, austerity, and neoliberal deregulation. Even where regulations and political will do exist to protect water supplies, workers' health and safety, and communities' health and livelihoods, there is inadequate capacity to do so, and governments may be further constrained by investment agreements and political pressure, for example, from the Canadian government. Another factor is population in the sense that many parts of the continent are occupied by subsistence farmers and pastoralists, as well as artisanal or small-scale miners who may also be farmers. So large-scale mining often not only compromises people's water supplies or access to land, but actually forcibly relocates entire villages and even districts. Barrett Gold's Bolinhulu mine in Tanzania forced at least 200,000 people off their land and possibly up to 350,000 with no compensation or accommodation. In other cases, people are relocated to model villages and astoundingly, despite decades of experience, these new villages continue to be built without taking people's needs into consideration and without providing them with support to ensure that they continue to have access to water or farmland, for example. And so just to mention uh, some, of the, some of the cases that that Mining Watch has been has been working on over the years, and and examples of of the kind of thing that happens. I, I mentioned the the Blankulu mine in, in Tanzania. Um, it's actually one of the first cases that that Mining Watch started working on um, in 1999 when we started up, because the the relocation had taken place in 1996. Um, you know, the the mine was established and the literally bulldozed people out of the way. As I said, you know, something like a quarter of a million people were forced off the off off the land to make room for the mine, and fifty-two people, up to or up to fifty-two people, were allegedly killed and allegedly buried in their own uh, small-scale mines by the company's bulldozers. And I have to keep saying allegedly because the case has never been proven in court. Um, the the affidavits that lawyers were collecting from the survivors were stolen. Um, there was considerable intimidation and uh, the, the police commissioner who was in charge of that operation was quickly promoted. So uh, it's been, you know, we have to we have to keep saying allegedly, otherwise we're, we're defaming Barrett Gold and that's something that you really don't want to do. But the, the brutality of that operation, I think, speaks to the, the reality of, of mining, not just in Tanzania and, and not just with Barrett Gold, but, you know, similar, if, if slightly less gruesome uh, cases have, have happened in, in other parts of the continent and in many countries. And as I say, you know, in, in places like Ghana, Burkina Faso, people are still being forced off their land to make room for Canadian gold mines. Uh, in also in Tanzania, also Barrett Gold opened its North Mara mine, um, uh, not too far from Bolinghulu, in 2002, and also didn't even 
try to relocate people out of or get people out of the way before they started building the mine. They just started building the mine. They started fencing off land. They started uh, digging and, and bulldozing. And the displaced people and the villagers who've lost their, their farmland are now called intruders because they are forced to survive by scavenging bits of gold from the mine site. And they often suffer routine and, and often deadly violence from uh, mine security and, and the police shootings, beatings, rape as part of their punishment for trying to make a living um, essentially off their own land. And throughout this, the barrack has enjoyed, um, I think, really deep support from the Canadian government, the Canadian High Commission. Most recently, there was a, a very strong attempt by the Tanzanian government. And this Tanzanian government had tried several times to rewrite its own laws and, and regulations to, to just to generate more revenue from mining, to try and capture more of the, the revenue as, as royalties and taxes. And um, the Canadian government has, has assiduously um, and insistently participated in intervening with the Tanzanian government on behalf of, of, the, of the company to defend it from having to pay more tax or more royalties and to defend its reputation. Um, and then as, as Bianca mentioned, the, the case in Burkina Faso, and I've, I've commented in the media, but I, I think the notable thing about this is essentially the fact that the mining company was so disastrously unprepared for, you know, for it to rain. Admittedly, it rained an awful lot in a short time, but, you know, Mining, mining engineers tend to have some idea of how their own operations work. And therefore, it's basically a management decision whether to have adequate emergency supplies or emergency, uh, in this case, emergency pumping capacity to deal with an influx of water and to protect those lives. And it's just astonishing that, um, as far as I know, they've still only recovered seven of the bodies of the eight missing miners and the, the mine will be closed for the foreseeable future while the Burkinabe authorities and the mining company try to figure out what happened. I'm gonna leave it at that. Uh, thank you again for the opportunity and I will pass it on. Next up in the discussion was Filia Nwoje. She was the head of the Paralegal Unit for Mining Affected Communities United in Action, which is a community-based united front of mining affected communities seeking to protect their interests against mining. Here is Filia Nwoche. The idea is that, you know, community development initiatives should empower communities such that they are able to challenge the conditions and structures that lead to the disempowerment of communities by increasing skills, knowledge, and enhancing elements of social inclusion, right? Um, development in initiatives should be sustainable. Um, and, you know, this doesn't really take place if there are disproportionate power relations as there would be within a you know, giant mining corporation and you know, traditional communities. And then communi 
community participation is supposed to inform the goals and strategies linked to that development. So as Makua and Wamua, we conducted a series of social audits, um, basically looking into the compliance of mining companies with these obligations and their social and labor plans. Um, and we selected 10 mining companies to do this in, which then act as case studies for us, you know. Um, the social order process is community-led. Um, it entails doing a series of community surveys, um, assessing the knowledge of you know, the general community around the projects that are supposed to be implemented in their communities. Um, as you've rightly said, we've got a social audit report that we'll be launching on the 28th of June. And I think one of the main things that came out of our research um, on and these social, social audits is that mining affected communities are being systematically excluded from participating in the formulation and implementation um, of these social and labor plans. So I think three core themes really arose for us in this um, social order process. You know, the unwillingness of mining companies to consult with mining affected communities as key stakeholders and update them on the progress of, you know, different projects that are due to be implemented. You know, secondly would be a widespread lack of compliance by mining companies with their legally binding obligations to implement socioeconomic development. And third for us is um, a lack of political and regulatory oversight and compliance monitoring. So none of the mining companies audited um, undertook a process of public participation in the formulation of any of their SLPs, which means that there's a fundamental exclusion of communities as it regards their ability to self-determine and bring forth the kinds of projects that they want to be implemented in their communities. So, I mean, that's a little bit strange if you think about how development is supposed to be connected to the people who it's supposed to benefit, right? And so we, 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 we undertook this process to also kind of challenge the narrative by mining companies that mining, you know, is, is beneficial for the communities in which mining companies operate. Um, I mean, about 90% of the participants did not know what a social and labor plan is, you know. Um, social and labor plans are publicly accessible documents. However, despite this first level of non-compliance whereby mining companies are not publishing their social and labor plans, 
um, you know, it go, it gets it gets a little bit deeper than that. Um, only about 4.3% of the local economic development projects were actually seen to completion by all 10 mines. So there was only, you know, a partial fulfillment of their obligations, as well as I would say maybe 70% of the obligations stated in the social and labor plans were actually never completed or implemented, right? Um, another thing that's that's really important to note is that non-compliance on SLPs and the obligations therein is not being monitored by the regulator and mining companies simply don't fear the repercussions should they not comply with their legally binding obligations. Um, one of the mining companies that formed part of our case studies is Ivan Plutz, a subsidiary of Ivanhoe Mines, a Canadian company. In their 2014 to 2018 social and labor plan, they committed to a variety of projects, four of which were audited during the social order process. So one of their commitments was to build multi-purpose sensors at economic hubs across the community in which they operate. However, there was no evidence to indicate that these multi-purpose centers exist. In fact, even in their reporting, they do say that they have not completed that project. It is well into 2022 and the project does not even um, you know, it doesn't, it's not referenced in their next social and level plan as a backlog project or, or anything like that. Um, a second project that we audited was um, the Lissetti Early Childhood and Development um, and a Business Center. So basically it's a center that looks after vulnerable children um, it's supposed to provide home-based care for the elderly and run programs focusing on supporting vulnerable children. Now, this was allocated a budget of approximately 12 million, 12 million rand, that is. Uh, and I mean, only 5.5% of the community members were aware of this project at all. Um, and where it's located. When we did physical inspections and did some interviews at the actual site of the project, we found that there was no business center. Um, the center actually works as a daycare, um, not necessarily for vulnerable children, but uh, for children. There is no home-based care program for the elderly. Um, a food garden was created by Ivan Blutz, but it didn't end up being sustainable. Um, right now, it's non-functional. And the center itself was simply renovated by Ivan Plutz, um, 
and the upgrades were just kind of fixing the roof, um, providing some burglar bars, but nothing substantial that would equate to, you know, 12 million rand being spent on the project. Another project that we looked at was a school's support program. Um, Ivan Plutz identified eight schools. Um, in total, their budget was about 14 million rand. And one of the most interesting things about this one is because there's a daycare center that they allegedly kind of supported, right? And when we went to visit this daycare center, it's a two-room kind of dwelling with a garage attached to it, a very small patch, maybe one by three meters long, you know, uh, of gardening done. And I mean, Ivan Plutz committed to spend 1.5 million rand on infrastructure upgrades to this daycare center. And it just didn't seem like anything was being done. I mean, the center hasn't been operational since 2020. And so the sustainability of, you know, developmental projects comes into play there. Um, another thing, another place rather that we audited, which was three other high schools. Um, and there were science and computer labs, um, you know, provided by Ivan Plutz. However, the science labs as well as the computer labs were made out of corrugated iron. And it's not a very big structure, can probably fit in 20 people. And, you know, these schools are public schools. So a general classroom is about 40 pupils. And so the budgetary allocation that was assigned to each school, in this case, it was about 1.8 million for the high schools. And that did not reflect, you know, when, when we actually were on the ground seeing the project, the budget did not match with what was actually physically present. Um, no extra classes were provided um, for students at these schools, but for competition that was, you know, run by Ivan Plus, funded by Ivan Plus. And it was only for gifted science and math students. Um, at best, we can say that Ivan Plus did contribute something to the schools, but because of the value committed to the projects, we would consider them partially fulfilled because in these villages, something for 1.5 million or 1.8 million would be easily recognizable. And, you know, it's um, a very traditional community. There isn't much development there. So something with that budget would be recognizable 
and we just don't think that Ivan Platz has contributed to the socioeconomic development of mining affected communities in the ways that they, you know, present um, to the outside world. Uh, our findings, you know, they, they, they speak to the manner in which mining companies do not consult communities on issues that affect their development. They do not implement su sufficiently sustainable projects in the affected communities. And the profits made by mining companies are just simply not trickling down to the intended beneficiaries of development. You know, there's a systemic failure which is entrenched in, you know, some of the weak legislative measures present, but as well, just the lack of monitoring and compliance needs to be noted because mining affected communities are really drawing the short end of the stick. Um, they don't have access to community to, to, to information. Um, they don't have access to the purported developmental projects as they as they live, you know. It, it's it's just our social audit report paints a very bleak picture of what development is seen as and and how it actually unfolds. You're listening to Canadian Mining in Africa, Looting a Continent. It is a presentation by the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute in June of 2022, airing on the Global Research News Hour, the program funded by the Centre for Research on Globalization and aided by CKW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. I am Michael Welch. The final speaker was Eve Engler. He is a fellow of the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute. He has also written over 10 books on Canadian foreign policy and given talks across the country. Here he is with a breakdown of Canadian mining interests and the Canadian government's role in perpetuating this toxic enterprise. I think that the first thing when, when thinking about uh, Canada's role in looting the continent is understanding a little bit of the history of imperialism and colonialism. And I did a book in 2015 called Canada and Africa, 300 Years of Aid and Exploitation, which shows how Canada really, in many different facets, supported the imperial, uh, the conquering of the continent in the late 1800s, hundreds, thousands of Canadians helped fight to conquer the continent on behalf of the British mostly, but also the Belgians. Um, uh, the missionaries, Canadian missionaries, played a very big role in the late 1800s in, 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 in the sort of, uh, at the cultural level of, of, of bringing in European domination. Uh, uh, Canadians supported, uh, there were Canadians who were colonial governors, uh, uh, British governors in northern Nigeria, uh, Kenya, Ghana, Canada supported the colonial process, opposed the anti-colonial movement, uh, provided huge amounts of weapons while they, the European colonial powers, uh, uh, Canadian weapons through NATO to, to support the suppression of colonial movements or anti-colonial movements in Africa. Uh, and then in, in, in the post-colonial period, Canada helped in overthrowing individuals like uh, uh, 
uh, Kwame Nkrumah in Ghana and, and Patrice Lumumba played a very important role in the ouster and assassination of uh, Patrice Lumumba in, 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 uh, in Congo. And so politicians that were trying to reverse the colonial process. So when, when we talk about Canadian mining and looting the continent, we're talking about this uh, history of, of, of an economic pattern where the continent, uh, Africa is a hub of, of natural resources that are taken out of the continent, little value added done uh, 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 locally and, and the profits and even many of the, the jobs uh, at the, certainly at the higher end, the engineering jobs um, are, are often uh, kind of Canadians or, or, or uh, uh, so-called expatriates. Um, so that's the that's part of how we have to understand the the broad question. Uh, Canada is a superpower in in uh, 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 mining superpower in Africa, uh, something like just under forty billion dollars in Canadian mining investment. Uh, people often we often hear about China buying up Africa on a per capita basis. Canada controls and owns far, far, far more of African uh, uh, mineral resources uh, or than, than, the, than China does. Um, it's, so, it's so extreme. Uh, I've written about how you, you, all these companies that have African names, they're all listed in Canada. So companies like African Queen Mines, Asante Gold Corporation, Tanzanian Royalty Exploration, uh, uh, I Am Gold, which is International African Mining Gold, uh, uh, African Gold Group, East African Metals. These are these are all Canadian companies. This is, there's literally dozens of them that 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 uh, that uh, have uh, African names, but they're actually uh, you know based here. And you often reading the business pages, the, the Financial Post or the Global Mail report on business. It's often stories of one Canadian company buying another Canadian company, uh, which they're what they're buying is essentially the, the, the natural resources of some community in the Congo or Ghana or, or uh, somewhere else on, on the continent. So, so um, it's, it's, it's quite extensive. And, and as Jamie uh, uh, mentioned, you know, this, this is not just a you know, private enterprise affair. This is state-backed, right? The Canadian government supports the mining, uh, the, 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 mining firms, Canadian companies specifically, and the mining industry. Basically, uh, they support not mining per se, but profit-oriented mining, uh, which is uh, invariably Canadian companies are, are, are do well by. So, so when they promote mining in Ethiopia, even if it's not directly, we're just promoting Canadian mining companies in Ethiopia by opening up the mining sector in Ethiopia to, to uh, foreign mining companies, invariably Canada is going to do well by their Canadian firms are going to do well by that uh, because they're so dominant uh, uh, in the, in the, in the sector. And, and the examples are kind of endless. Um, you know, just recently you had the, uh, the parliamentary sector secretary for the minister of international trade, Arif Varani, who participated in launching the Canada's uh, reception at the, the big mining conference in South Africa, the mining in Daba uh, conference, um, you know, Canada, the Canadian government financed uh, Burkina Faso's Chamber of Mines to participate in the mining conference in South Africa. Uh, we talked about the eight uh, miners who've been uh, who, who've uh, been lost, uh, died in in uh, in Burkina Faso. Um, it's really interesting to see the Canadian uh, uh, ambassador her reaction. That the only mention I could see 
of, of Leanne Herman, Canada's ambassador of Burkina Faso to this uh, tragedy was a tweet that she tweeted out about having a dinner with a, a Canadian, uh, 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 the CEO of uh, Fortuna, Fortuna Silver uh, and some other mining uh, officials in Burkina Faso. And she tweeted out, on a most difficult day for Canadian mining companies in Burkina Faso, it was a pleasure to meet with Jorge Ganosa, CEO of Canada's Fortuna Silver, to learn more about their rock school mine operations in Burkina Faso and commitment to responsible business conduct. So the only mention is, is, is a most difficult day for Canadian mining companies. That's the reference to the fact that um, the, 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 um, the uh, escape uh, hatchet or whatever you call it, where they, they, the chamber where miners can, can uh, safe, uh, if, if there is some sort of catastrophe, that it was found empty. Uh, uh, so she tweets out about a most difficult day for Canadian miners. N nothing about the actual individuals, the families, uh, you know, who, who, who died or, or, or at this point weren't certain De dead, but who are lost, uh, just um, this most difficult day, and, and announces it with Canadian mining companies, with meeting with the CEOs, not with the families, not with uh, actual miners, but the, the those who are making the profits. Um, and so this is just a, you know, a small sign of, of, of how deeply integrated Canadian diplomacy is with, with, um, with expanding the interests of mining companies and, and the mining sector. I would argue that um, at least a dozen countries uh, on the African continent, the main thing Canadian diplom diplomats do is advance the interests of Canadian mining companies. It's dozens and dozens of countries around the world, mostly uh, in Africa. And, and how they do this is, you know, this is endless. Uh, they arrange meetings between local politicians and Canadian businesses. Uh, they organize conferences that are associated uh, with mining sector. Uh, they lobby for our mining sector reforms. Uh, they go to mines, uh, they, and often controversial mines, they'll, they'll uh, show up at uh, some sort of uh, uh, ribbon cutting ceremony at a Canadian mine, often it, it went, even if the, the company has, you know, displaced a local community or been involved in human rights violations, they'll, they'll often tout the company's uh, uh, corporate social responsibility policies. Uh, Canadian, um, uh, the Prime Minister, when traveling in, in Tanzania, for instance, meeting with mining company uh, executives, uh, when African leaders come to Ottawa, uh, even, meet, even to meet the prime minister, uh, often the question of mining interests is raised by uh, the Canadian prime minister and other top officials. Uh, Canada's been involved in helping rewrite mining codes, uh, invariably to benefit uh, uh, foreign miners. Uh, uh, funded uh, uh, geological data to, to enable mining in general, which generally, again, usually benefits Canadian uh, uh, corporations. As Jamie mentioned, Export Development Canada finances, uh, uh, provides financing uh, uh, and insurance to Canadian mining companies. Uh, the Canadian Trade Commissioner Service is a big player in advancing uh, Canadian mining operations. In, uh, in 2019, the head of uh, the senior vice president of the Mining Association of Canada, uh, Ben Chalmers said that the, the trade commissioner service plays a pretty big role. Uh, trade commissioners stand behind us and give us the additional credibility that being associated with the government of Canada abroad brings, right? So directly, you know, providing a, a diplomatic uh, uh, cover to uh, Canadian uh, uh, mining companies. 
all kinds of aid projects that support uh, the mining industry financed by our, our, uh, our aid agency, uh, Zimbabwe School of Mines, uh, recent announcements, uh, aid tens of millions of dollars devoted to projects like, quote, West Africa governance and economic sustainability in extractive areas, uh, the enhanced oversight of the extractive industries in Francophone Africa. Those are recent uh, aid projects by our, uh, our aid agency. Uh, they often finance the corporate social responsibility projects of companies. So a $4.5 million grant to London for Africa, which operates in a number of uh, uh, West African, uh, uh, it's a mining company that operates a number of West African countries. Uh, a $5.6 million aid project between uh, NGO Plan Canada and I'm, I Am Gold in Burkina Faso, which was really, much, really designed to pacify local opposition to the mine. Uh, example in, in uh, South Africa after uh, Placer Dome uh, in the early 2000s um, laid off a bunch of uh, miners. Uh, the Canadian Aid Agency put up $1.4 million to basically uh, help in, in, in lessening opposition to the mining company for having uh, laid off many workers. At the macro level, the Canadian government channels aid to countries that have significant Canadian uh, uh, mining uh, in, in investments and, and uses it as a, as a lever to, uh, to support uh, uh, mining um, uh, uh, in those countries. Jamie mentioned it a bit, um, the, the whole question of structural adjustment. And the Canadian government was a major player in the late 1980s and through the mid-90s uh, in promoting structural adjustment policies across the continent. And, and one of the things that the structural adjustment policies pursued by the International Monetary Fund did was open up countries' uh, uh, resource sectors to foreign exploitation. And hundreds of millions of dollars in Canadian aid via the IMF went to supporting structural adjustment programs and tens probably into the hundreds of millions uh, of Canadian aid went directly to supporting structural adjustment via the Canadian aid agency that our projects, aid projects became dependent on countries following the IMF uh, uh, calls to open up countries to, to foreign investment, to, to uh, reduce royalty rates, to allow for foreign exploitation of, of uh, natural resources. And, and it, it, this benefited, this was direct benefit, uh, this directly benefited Canadian companies, right? Uh, in Ghana, Canada played a really important role in late 1980s structural adjustment and put all this money uh, uh, into this project to pacify opposition to the structural adjustment program. And uh, the major beneficiaries of, 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 the, of the structural adjustment was Canadian mining companies. Uh, in in, uh, in Zambia, with the Canada in, in later in the 90s, uh, pushing for the, the sell-off of, uh, of uh, its copper, its uh, publicly owned copper company. And, and um, Canada, uh, uh, through the uh, 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 consultative group, um, actually they, they held up uh, $530 million in loan to the Zambian government uh, until they fully privatized the, the copper and 
major beneficiary of that was uh, First Quantum, Vancouver uh, mining company and, and Canadian companies more generally have been very done very well in, in Zambia. And this, 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 the, this, the copper sell-off was at ridiculously low rates, right? The, the, the Canadian company uh, uh, purchased the publicly owned uh, assets for, for a fraction of their value and billions and billions of dollars was uh, extracted from uh, Zambia in, through the 2000s uh, uh, with, the, with the country receiving almost nothing in terms of royalties and taxes. Um, and if you look at the numbers, you know, in, in 1989, when the structural adjustment period begins, and then uh, today, you go from about $230 million of Canadian mining investment in Africa to now it's about $36 billion. It varies a little bit each year. Um, so huge. We're talking about 150-fold or more increase in, in mining investment. So Canadian companies very much benefited from structural adjustment. Now, Canadian companies in recent years have become quite worried that there's going to be a reversal of the neoliberal policies and there's going to be a you know, push for resource nationalism. So what the Canadian government has done to support uh, 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 mining firms is to, to, to uh, push uh, foreign, uh, foreign investment promotion and protection agreements, uh, FIPAs, uh, all across the continent. And Ottawa has signed or negotiated these accords with 20 African countries. There is basically, there's very little African investment in Canada. So a FIPA is only protecting Canadian investors, right? It's not, you know, Uganda doesn't have significant investments in Canada. Canada may have investments in Uganda. So there's, you know, Ugandan investors not being protected by a FIPA uh, uh, for their investments in Canada. So it's, it's, it's very one-sided. And it's really about locking in the neoliberal reforms. They, 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 they uh, usually last for 16 years. So if a government signs a FIPA, future governments are restricted in their ability to, uh, to go in a different direction. And what a FIPA does is it gives the company the ability to sue the local government in an invest in an international tribunal for lost profits. And, and some of these FIPAs have been done in ways that are you know, really dubious uh, uh, from a democratic standpoint. So for instance, in Burkina Faso, Canada had negotiated a FIPA with the Blaise Compare, the, who was in power for, uh, I think, about 25 years, uh, uh, the dictatorship. And then there was a popular uprising that ousted him. And the, Trudeau, uh, the, the Harper government signed the FIPA with the interim government that was supposed to be just a caretaker government. So locking in all future governments for, for uh, you know, a decade and a half uh, with a government that didn't have any pretense of electoral legitimacy. So, so this process is really much designed to undercut popular protest, to undercut uh, pushes for resource nationalism, or, or even undercut those who just want the, the resources to stay in the ground, don't want to be extracting the minerals. Um, to get a sense of how extreme uh, Canada's support for mining in, 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 uh, in African countries uh, can be, the example of, of uh, which is which Jamie mentioned a bit, um, but I go into a little bit more of, of Barrett Gold in Tanzania. This is the Canadian company, the most controversial Canadian mining company, in a country where they there's dozens and dozens of people who've been killed by their security at their North Mara mine. There's there's uh, all kinds of human rights violations alleged in uh, uh, by the company, and. In 2016-2017, uh, there became a big uh, controversy in Tanzania over unpaid royalties and taxes by Barrett Gold, and it, be, it was a you know a top news item in the country. Well, 
the Canadian government went to bat, the Trudeau government, right? This is the, you know, Trudeau was supposed to be, you know, less pro-mining than the, than the previous uh, Stephen Harper, went to bat for Barrett Gold uh, uh, to the hilt. Uh, the, a couple of weeks ago, the Globe Mail report on business released a, a um, uh, uh, had a front page story about uh, uh, part of this uh, based upon internal government documents. The story was titled, Canadian foreign aid was, dis- was discussed during Barrick tax dispute in Tanzania, internal email show. So the Canadian government leveraged its aid to Tanzania, fourth biggest donor to Tanzania, uh, uh, on behalf of Barrick and putting pressure on the government to, to not demand uh, Barrick pay uh, uh, unpaid uh, royalties and taxes and to put pressure on the company, uh, the country to come to some agreement with, with Barrick over the matter. Uh, uh, they, they uh, talking points in, the, in this file, in the internal file show that they, the Canadian High Commissioner was prepared to talk about uh, Barrick's human rights record and to say it had you know, improved. So they were def- defending this horrible human rights record of Barrick Gold at, at North Mara. Again, dozens, everyone agrees, dozens and dozens uh, dead. Uh, some estimates go as high as 300 killed at uh, the mine over the past uh, decade and a half. Um, the 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 uh, uh, Canadian uh, High Commissioner organized a meeting by the head of Barrick, uh, John Thornton, and the president. Um, uh, after the meeting, I, Ian Miles, Canadian High Commissioner, uh, said, "Quote: Canada is very proud that it expects all its companies to respect the highest standards, fairness, and respect for laws and corporate social responsibility. We know that Barrick is very much committed to those values." So giving the stamp of approval to Barrick in this huge controversy uh, over unpaid taxes, uh, royalties, and human rights violations, here you have the High Commissioner uh, organize a meeting for the head of Barrick with the president and then giving Canada's stamp of approval for the company. And if you can, ba- if you can back Barrick in Tanzania, you pretty much can back any mining company in any situation because it, does, it doesn't really get much worse than, than what Barrick is, is, is uh, been involved with uh, uh, in Tanzania. So, so the Trudeau government has really continued this policy of, of backing Canadian mining companies. And, and, you know, if you go back historically, this is, this is a large part what, you know, Canadian uh, trade commissioners, if you go back, you know, during the colonial period, in, uh, in Guinea, during French colonial rule, Canadian trade commissioner uh, worked to help um, uh, Alcan, Montreal-based company, uh, extract bauxite, uh, which began in 1916 and into the 20s and, and throughout uh, uh, French, worked very hand-in-hand with the French colonial administrators. Or if you look at um, uh, one of the reasons why Canada supported Idi Amin's uh, coup against uh, Milton Obote in, in Uganda, was because of uh, Falconbridge and uh, and uh, what what um, what uh, uh, Abote had done in terms of uh, nationalization on uh, Falconbridge, and then and then uh, when they meet with Idi Amin, the Canadian uh, uh, High Commissioner, uh, they bring up Falconbridge and there's the the internal emails. Uh, uh, they talk about uh, how the situation in Falconbridge has has improved in Idi Amin's uh, uh, Uganda. So so Canadian uh, diplomacy, aid policy on the continent uh, very much is about advancing 
mining companies, specifically Canadian mining companies, almost no matter what those what those mining firms are are doing. And so I, I invite anyone who's in Toronto, I very much invite you to uh, participate in tomorrow's uh, demonstration against the uh, uh, the big uh, mining conference in Toronto, because the question of uh, of uh, uh, mining injustice and uh, uh, solidarity uh, um, with uh, uh, communities affected by Canadian mining companies is a is a really important uh, a part of uh, challenging, uh, calling for a more just Canadian foreign policy. The speakers then addressed questions from the general public about the Canadian mining interests in Africa. Bianca, the moderator, led the discussion with a simple question of what can and needs to be done to reverse Canada's objectionable record on the African continent. So, um... Uh, first question, what, what are some things that can be done to tighten the reins uh, on corporations for less environmental and social abuses? Um, Jamie, perhaps we can start with you. Um, sure, there, I mean, there's lots that could be done. Um, Canada doesn't have any laws actually restricting the activities of Canadian companies internationally. In, in any field, uh, except the anti-corruption law, the, the, um, the Corruption of Foreign Public Officials Act, um, which I think I noted somewhere in the chat is something that we've tried to work with the RCMP to, you know, where there is evidence of corruption um, to get it investigated. Uh, I've had RCMP officials acknowledge that there are many countries in the world, many parts of the world where they they know that, you know, you don't do business without engaging in corruption. Um, and, and yet they did not have the capacity or the will to do anything about it. And, and even in cases where we provided them with evidence, they either sort of failed to connect with witnesses or just uh, one case that they did investigate, they decided not to press charges. Um, it just it's 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 really frustrating, but it's it's a question of of the, I think political will. You know, it's it's nice to tell people that we're opposed to corruption, and it's another it's another whole kettle of fish to do something about it. And we saw that with the SNC Lavalin affair federally here, but uh, you know, even with small companies, they're they're just not willing or able to to do anything about it. Um, you know, so that could be enforced. That would actually potentially, given the scale of corruption in the sector, have a huge impact. Um, we could ban the use of tax havens and secrecy jurisdictions for for uh, corporate subsidiaries. There's no, you know, there's no business reason that you have to channel your money through the Cayman Islands to invest in the Congo. But that's what they do. Um, we, uh, we know why they do it. Um, because of the secrecy, we can't prove what's going on. Although there there have been some attempts to do that, at least on the on the aggregate, um, you know, but we don't we don't have to allow that to happen. So it's it's a very clear indication of the the political collusion. There are other you know there's lots of of more direct things that people can do that are unfortunately you know um, less less 
legally compelling. So, you know, we, we can complain to the mining companies, we can pressure them, we can write letters, we can pressure the Canadian government in specific cases, and it may make a difference. And, you know, I think in the in the case of Barrett Gold, if we hadn't been relentlessly publicizing what they're actually doing on the ground in places like Tanzania, um, it would have just continued on, you know, unhindered and what we've seen actually is that you know they've backed off a little bit they've they've reorganized things a bit uh, there are still shootings and assaults going on but the the rate is much lower than before so i i guess that's an improvement but you know um i think the biggest thing we can do is is organize and support communities on the ground in whatever legal mechanisms legal action that they can take the, the work of makua and others in South Africa as a testimony to this, you know, there are, even in really, really poor legal systems, there are often mechanisms that can be used. And even if they don't work, they, they help build a lot of pressure um, politically and legally in support of, of the community. So, you know, that's the kind of thing that, that we can help support and, you know, build solidarity around those efforts because it, you know, nothing will happen without organizing on the ground. And that's not something that, that, you know, we can engage in directly as internationalists, but it's something that we can build solidarity around. And I think that's really important. On the Global Research News Hour today, we've been listening to a conversation about Canadian mining in Africa, looting a continent. It was conducted over Zoom by the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute in collaboration with Mining Watch Canada and featured speakers James Neen, Filia Nwoche, and Eve Engler. It was moderated by Bianca Mujeni, director of the CFPI. To see the full discussion, look for Canadian Foreign Policy Institute on YouTube and look for the topic Canadian Mining in Africa. This has been the Global Research News Hour in the summer, a collaboration funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and aided by campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji, Cree, Diné, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. Music was from the song Shifting Sands by Purple Planet Music. It can be found at the site purple-planet. I'm the show's host, creator, and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you for listening. Please return in seven days' time for another special summertime episode.